Welcome to the book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter, we're going to start in chapter 8, verse 33. If you don't have a Bible with you, there ought to be one in a pew rack in front of you. Uh, or a neighbor that has one, feel free to poke them in the eye and take their Bible while they're nursing their wound. But uh, Judges chapter 8, verse 33 is where we're going to start. If you're using a pew Bible, you're going to find our passage on page 242. Uh, And let me encourage you to either keep your Bible open the whole time this morning. We're going to refer back to it multiple times and certainly at the end. And and if you do close it, at least bookmark it so that you can make a a quick turn back to uh, our passage. So we'll start here in Judges chapter 8, verse 33 here in just a moment. Uh, Our first family pet was a dog named Morley. And Morley was Melissa's dog uh, for sure. And he was an Italian greyhound. So it was like a miniature greyhound. And uh, when I looked at Morley, I saw a dog that was ugly. When Melissa looked at Morley, she saw a dog that was beautiful. Uh, Italian greyhounds, I don't know if you know this, they look like chihuahuas that have been put on a stretcher. (laughs) Just legs. It's just all legs and tail. Uh, And then when Morley was a puppy... Uh, the apartment we lived in at the time had really plush carpet. And this one day I came home from work and I opened the door, not knowing that Morley was sitting right behind the door. And so when I opened the door, his tail got caught between the door and the carpet. And so when he removed himself from the situation, his tail had this little crook, this 90 degree crook at the end of it. And so we went to the vet and the vet looked at it and said, it's definitely fixable. It'll cost you this many hundreds of dollars. I'll have to re-break it and then put it back together. Uh, and we said, you know, it just adds character. Let's <laughs> stick with that. So you always knew which way he was going because the crook in his tail was pointing, whichever way he was going. He had these floppy ears that sometimes turned inside out. Super skinny, really skinny dog. Could not eat enough to put any fat on him. So he always looked emaciated, but he ate all the time. And then as he got older and lost some teeth, his tongue would hang out the side of his mouth. So here's this dog with ribs, tongue hanging out, tail crooked. I look at him and I think, what an ugly animal and melissa looks at him and thinks there's not a more beautiful animal on this planet than that dog well our our passage today is sort of like our old dog Uh, many people will read this passage in grimace and see all the ugliness in it and think oh there's not much that's good here but my hope is that by the time we finish with it this morning you and I would look at this passage and see the beauty in it. And all the beauty in the story comes from God. All the ugliness in the story comes from man and our sinful choices. And isn't life a lot like that as well? This story is certainly bleak. It's filled with sin and treachery and stupidity and death. And that's just what our lives are like also. Oftentimes when we look at the lives we're living, the situations we're in, we may just see the ugliness. Maybe hard to see the God that we just sang about, a God of grace, a God of wonder and awe. But we sing these songs, but we might feel like they're a bit detached from the reality of life because my Monday through Saturday is a hot mess. I got all kinds of problems going on. This struggle, that struggle. This phone call came this week. I've got this problem that's boiling up. Oftentimes, it's the ugliness of life that gets all of our attention. Sometimes that ugliness is a result of our sinful choices. But I hope that by spending some time here in Judges chapter 9, you and I are going to see the beauty of God that shines bright through all the ugliness of our sin. So my goal today in our passage is for you to see the beauty of God over and above the ugliness of sin. We're going to read about a son of Gideon. If you weren't with us last week, you need to get on the website and hear Pastor Dave's sermon on Gideon from last Sunday. He covered Judges chapters 7 and 8. And it's required listening in order to, one, just to edify your soul. And then two, uh, as a good prerequisite for Judges chapter 9, where we're going to be this morning. But we're going to read about a guy named Abimelech who is a train wreck of a human being. 
And everywhere he goes, he brings destruction. But at the end of all of this, God is the champion of his people. And I hope you'll find some good encouragement here. So to encourage you today, I want to share with you three truths from this passage that lead us to God in the ugliness of life. Why three truths? Because I'm required by law to only have three points in a sermon. That's it. Not really. Uh, This passage breaks down very nicely into three different sections. So I want to tell you what those sections are. And then as we read this long passage, I'm going to remind you or I'll show you when we get to each different section. So the story goes like this. The first section is about our main antagonist, Abimelech, and the people from the city of Shechem. And it's about the sin that they get themselves into. So section one starts in chapter eight, verse 33. It goes to chapter nine, verse six. It's all about the sin of Abimelech and Shechem. The second section starts in chapter nine, verse 22, or excuse me, verse seven. And it goes to verse 21. And here, one of Abimelech's brothers, a man named Jotham, tells a story and delivers a curse on Abimelech and Shechem. So we've got the sin of Abimelech and Shechem. We've got Jotham's fable and curse. And then the last section starts in chapter 9, verse 22. That's what I would call God's faithful judgment. Really, the horror of the story is amplified. But in this moment, we see God faithful to his word and faithful to his people. All right. So I want you to follow along with me as I read. We're going to start in chapter 8, verse 33. I'll give you a couple of section markers as we go through. Let's just buckle up and go through this together. All right, here we go. Chapter 8, verse 33. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jerubel, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. Abimelech, son of Jerubel, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jerubel's sons rule over you or just one man. And remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bereth. And Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubel. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubel, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. All right, here verse 7 starts section 2. This is Jotham's fable and his curse on the people. Okay, So verse 7, when Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next, the trees said to the fig tree, come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, come and be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, if you have acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, and if you have been fair to Jerubel and his family, and if you have treated him as he deserves, and to think that my father fought for you, risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian, but today you have revolted against my father's family, murdered his 70 sons on a single stone, and made Abimelech, the son of his slave girl, king over the citizens of Shechem because he is your brother. 
Well, if then you have acted honorably and in good faith toward Jeroboam and his family today, may Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to bear. And he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. All right, verse 22 starts our final section. This is the portrayal of God's faithfulness and the judgment of these people. Verse 22. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem who acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by, and this was reported to Abimelech. Now Gaul, son of Ebed, moved with his brothers into Shechem, and its citizens put their confidence in him. After they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their God. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. Then Gaul, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son? And isn't Zebul his deputy? Serve the men of Hamor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, call out your whole army. When Zebul, the governor of the city, heard what Gaul, son of Ebed, said, he was very angry. Undercover, he sent messengers to Abimelech, saying, Gaul, son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem and are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields. In the morning at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gaul and his men come out against you, do whatever your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all his troops set out by night and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now Gaul, son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance to the city gate just as Abimelech and his soldiers came out from their hiding place. When Gaul saw them, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. Zebul replied, You mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. But Gaul spoke up again. Look, people are coming down from the center of the land. And a company is coming from the direction of the soothsayer's tree. And then Zebul said to him, Where is your big talk now? You who said, Who is Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. So Gaul led out the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased him and many fell wounded in the flight. All the way to the entrance of the gate, Abimelech stayed in Aruma, and Zebul drove Gaul and his brothers out of Shechem. The next day, the people of Shechem went out to the fields, and this was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance to the city gate. Then two companies rushed upon those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. On hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of El Berith. When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, He and all his men went up to Mount Zalman. He took an axe and cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, quick, do what you've seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold, set it on fire over the people inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women also died. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes. And he besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city fled. They locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. 
Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me. So they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubel, came on them. Good job. That's a long one. And it's a heavy one. But it is not a story without hope or encouragement, believe it or not. A lot of ugliness going on here. Our lives full at times of ugliness. Let me give you three truths that lead us to God in the ugliness of life. If you take taking notes, first of all, sin is always destructive. This fact that sin has destructive power always is something that drives us into the arms and the grace of God. Our story begins in a sadly familiar place all the way back to chapter 8, verse 33, We're told no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereath as their God and did not remember the Lord their God. So no longer had Gideon died. And remember, if you were with us last week, Gideon primed the pump for this idolatry at the end of his life. Gideon's story, which covers three chapters here in the book of Judges, It starts on an upward trajectory, and then it hits the skids quick, and it gets really gross at the end of his life. So Gideon had sort of set the scene for the idolatry to follow, and and Israel follows in suit. They have Gideon's funeral, and then they prop up this false god as their own god, a god named Baal Bereath. Now, Baal is just a common name for a regional deity. There's all kinds of Baals. It's not like you have... Jehovah, the one God, versus Baal, the one God, you would have a Baal in every little region. If it were so here where we live, there would be a Baal Hingham and a Baal Weymouth and a Baal Cohasset. You just have your own little regional fertility God that you would make sacrifices to in order to have a good harvest and to have things go well for you. But there's something interesting about the name Baal Bereath. You see, Bereath is not a town or a region. Bereath is a word that means covenant. And that word covenant belongs to one God and one God only, and his name is Yahweh. So it gives us a little bit of insight into the kind of idolatry practiced by ancient Israel. If you want a big $2 word to use at lunch and sound pretentious to your friends, the word here is syncretism. What that means is Israel takes a little bit of their Yahweh worship and they take a bit of their Baal worship and they blend it all together in this new kind of expression. We're told that they forgot their God. That doesn't mean that they forget the stories or they forget his name or they forget the worship or they forget the requirements. It just simply means they blatantly disobey. They break first commandment loyalty and they chase after these other gods. So they don't stop being Israel. They don't stop being Yahweh's people. They just start being Yahweh's people who also worship Baal. Here, this syncretism is something that doesn't exist only in Judges chapter 9 here in days of old with people who are of lesser intelligence than we are. We live in a land of religious syncretism. And we must learn from the lesson of Israel. If this kind of idolatry can happen to God's people, then it can happen to God's people now. And we, as South Shore Baptist Church, must make certain that the gospel stays central to our fellowship. That the word of God is always our anchor. Sitting under a steeple, does not make you a Christian any more than sitting in a barn makes you a cow. We must be anchored to the Word of God. And we must be gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must be aware of all the ways 
syncretism and its idolatry lurks even at the doors of our church, even at the doors of our own homes. It's in this setting that the anti-Gideon arises. Abimelech is one of Gideon's 70-ish sons. His mother was a prostitute from Shechem. The story tells us that Abimelech, he goes to the leaders of the city of Shechem and he warns them of a potential coming conflict of power. Hey, we've got one king gone and now we've got 71 claims to the throne. Which is better, to have all of these 70-something kings or just have one? And which is better, to just have one king or one king who went to Shechem High? One king who is one of you. So in their tribal loyalty, above their covenant loyalty, out of their tribal loyalty, all this brain trust in Shechem goes, yeah, we want one of our own at the helm. And Abimelech, you're the guy, since you are one of Gideon's sons, you're the one to take us there. So this newly formed Abimelech super PAC takes money from the church to the false god, and they give that money 70 shekels of silver, an ominous number, knowing that he has 70 brothers. Give him this money so he can go and secure the throne, and he does it at the edge of a sword. Abimelech, one by one, draws his half-brothers to this one stone in the town of Ophrah. There he dispatches every brother except for one the youngest named Jotham, who escapes and shows up again here in just a little bit. One writer summed up the sin of Shechem in this way. He said, blood is thicker than brains. They give the keys to the kingdom to this rotten human being. It's interesting how much Gideon and Abimelech are polar opposites. Gideon was offered the kingship and declined, but Abimelech pursues the kingship. Gideon destroyed the Midianite invaders, but Abimelech destroys his own people. Gideon set up an altar to Yahweh in Ophrah, but Abimelech turned Ophrah into a place of execution. Gideon frees Israel, Abimelech terrorizes Israel. You know, in our other stories we've read in Judges, all the enemies were other ites. Midianites, Ammonites, Amalekites. Moabites, Philistines, right? All the enemies are these other people. But this time the enemy is different. The enemy comes from within Israel. Israel's destroyer is one of her own sons. Christians these days tend to be a fearful bunch. We worry about so many threats to the church We worry about the erosion of religious freedoms. We worry about presidential administrations. Doesn't matter which party. We worry about liberal agendas. But I think there's a powerful word from Scripture here to remind us that it's not just the enemies from without we should fear. It's the enemies from within that bring great destruction to the church. When the people of God chase after sin... When the people of God forget the Lord. There's a blast radius. Horrible things happen. Every bit of horror and ugliness in this story comes from the sin of man. Sin is always destructive. It is destructive in our homes. It is destructive in our lives. It is destructive in our churches It's destructive in our cities and towns. There is never a place where sin has been a benefit to the progress of mankind. Sin is always a destructive force. And God will not allow His holiness to be profaned in the church without consequence. Sin is always judged. Always. What's interesting in this story is that when God's judgment falls on Abimelech and on Shechem... It's not with some voice from on high. It's not lightning and thunder. No miraculous sign. It's just life goes on and the judgment falls. And eventually there's a funeral for Abimelech and the people of Shechem. And that's the end of it. God's judgment succeeds quietly and efficiently. And so before you and I would say of ourselves, my sin is not that big a deal. My sin is not a big issue. It doesn't seem like to me that that God's telling me this is a big deal. 
We've got to learn this lesson from Abimelech in Shechem. Sin is always destructive. And the destructive nature of that sin should lead us to the only one who can remove its curse and its penalty. You can be a kind person. You can change your life to get rid of bad habits. You can be a more moral person. Those things make for lovely citizens and neighbors. But they do not remove your sin in any bit, nor do they remove its punishment. The only way sin is punished and you make it through is if Jesus Christ is the one who bears the punishment for your sin. And that's what the cross is all about. The destructive nature and power of our sin is something that ought to drive us to the God who desires to remove it and has made a way to remove it from us once and for all. There's another truth in this story in the midst of all this ugliness that would drive us to God. The first one we talked about is the destructive nature of sin. It's always destructive. Second, righteousness is never popular. Righteousness is never popular. This truth drives us to God. So Abimelech returns from the massacre at Ophrah and the city fathers at Shechem prepare for his coronation. It's an appalling scene. One, because of the sickly players involved. Here comes Shechem's hero, sword dripping with the blood of his own brothers. This is our noble and honorable king. It's also an appalling scene because of the location. The city of Shechem is a big deal. Shechem is the location where Abraham hears the voice of God and God says, this is the land I'm going to give you. So Shechem is the place where Abraham puts the first altar to Yahweh in the promised land. Shechem sits in between two mountains at the base of these two mountains in this valley. And those two mountains are places where covenant ceremonies have taken place between God's people and the Lord. So Shechem is the spiritual heartbeat, the spiritual center of God's people. Shechem is Israel, or excuse me, Shechem is Jerusalem before Jerusalem. So the fact that you would crown this king is appalling also because Tribes don't appoint their own kings in Israel. These are not city-states. They are one nation. And and so when Shechem decides we're going to crown a king for ourselves, they are essentially seceding from the tribes and they are rebelling against what should be a, a union between the 12 of them all. So they prepare to place the crown on Abimelech's head. And then a lone voice cries out, It's Jotham, the one surviving brother. When Jotham tells this story, this long story about trees that need a king, and they talk to the olive tree and the fig tree, and they talk to the grapevine, they all say no. This fable can sometimes get us mixed up. We may think that the emphasis of the story is on the olive tree, the fig tree, and the grapevine that say no. But that's not the point is not about qualified people saying no to good leadership. That's not the point of the fable. The point is the thorn bush. And in Jotham's story, the thorn bush is then propped up as king of the trees. And he makes this statement to all the people in the fable. Verse 15, the stupid thorn bush says, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. Now, I am not an arborist. But even I know thorn bushes are not known for their shade. No one says, come to my garden. Look at all the thorn bushes I've cultivated. It's beautiful. Everywhere you walk, your clothes get stuck on them. This is fantastic. No one does that. No one wants thorn bushes. They're only good for destruction. That's all they're there for. This fable that Jotham tells is about the failure of God's people in propping up a king who should not be a king, calling a leader who should not be their leader. And do you know who the thorn bush is in this story? Of course you do. The thorn bush is Abimelech. Abimelech is going to prove Jotham right. Everywhere he goes, he brings destruction and, and havoc. And he speaks a curse. Jotham speaks a curse on the people that day. The curse says, look, if you've wronged the memory of Gideon, May fire come from Abimelech and consume you people. And may fire come from you people and consume Abimelech. So Jotham is the lone voice of clarity in this story. He is right 
and he is alone. How do you think a resident of Shechem, who was present on that day and heard Jotham's speech, how do you think one of those people might have responded to Jotham? Jotham, what are you talking about? You're speaking nonsense. How can you assume that you're right all by yourself and that we're wrong? Look, everyone is here. The city fathers, the leaders, all of us. We have all agreed this is the course of action to take. This is the right man for the throne. And here's you on your own condemning us. Who are you to condemn us? You're such a fundamentalist. You're on the wrong side of history, Jotham. You're going to invoke the name of Gideon. Gideon's dead. Not coming back. We want to move forward as a city. Look how progressive the people of Shechem are compared to you and your fundamental ways, Jotham. We, we will not exclude our Canaanite neighbors. Rather, we welcome them. We, we reach across to them, hold hands together. We won't exclude their gods. We welcome their gods. We're all walking up different roads up the same mountain to the same destination anyways. So Jotham, why don't you quit with all of this nonsense? Put this coexist sticker on your chariot and bow to your new king. We've got to get this truth deep in our souls. That God's word is not dictated. God's truth is not decided by majority vote or poll numbers. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus in this world, you will always be the minority voice. You will always be outnumbered, always. You'll be outnumbered at school. You'll be outnumbered at work. And you'll be outnumbered in the public arena. And possibly even in your own family. But this is no reason to capitulate. The gospel of Jesus has always advanced in the face of what many would consider overwhelming odds. The gospel has spread most when God's people have been oppressed most. And God loves to show his power through human frailty. Whether it's Gideon's army of 300 soldiers or it's a lone solitary Jotham. Where does the power lie in this story? Does the power lie in Abimelech and the population of Shechem? Or does the power lie in Jotham and the Lord? When you've got the Lord on your side, you have everything in one. There's nothing else you need. So we must not be discouraged by the dissenting voices around us. Nor should we be swayed from biblical truth by those dissenting voices. We walk a fine line as a church. On the one hand, we should strive to have a good reputation with outsiders. To pray for the the good of our city and work for the good of the neighbors around us. But on the other side, we have God-given boundaries that we dare not cross over. Not in the name of popularity, not in the name of friendship, not in the name of keeping peace. What God has called true is true. What God has called unholy is unholy. It is not to us, the church, to vote whether or not we will follow or agree. It is just for us to trust the Lord and walk forward with Him, even if we are the only voice. In recent weeks, one of our sister churches in Brookline has experienced this firsthand. City on a Hill Church lent the town of Brookline their sound system for a town festival. And as a kindness back to a city on a hill church, the city of Brookline on the poster for the event listed city on a hill church as one of the co-sponsors. And the good residents of Brookline lost their ever loving minds. You can go to the Brookline public schools discussion page on Facebook and you can see the rants, the people who said, I'm scared for my children to be around these Christians. The people who said the things that church teaches are akin to the things that created Nazism in Germany. We're here to love our neighbors and that's what we're going to do. But we will always be the minority voice. 
But as long as the voice we hear is the voice of God, we're going to be okay. We press forward. Because righteousness is not a matter of popular vote. It's never popular, but it's always right. The Apostle Peter encouraged the early persecuted church in this way. In 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice! If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So righteousness is never popular. God's way is never going to win the majority vote. But his voice is the right voice. His word is the true word. His salvation is the right salvation. And it ought to drive us to trust in the God who has all of this under his control. Why should you trust God, turn to God in the midst of the ugliness of life? One, sin is always destructive. Two, righteousness is never popular. Three, finally, God is always the rescuer. God is always the rescuer. So starting in verse 22, the fires of destruction begin to burn through Abimelech and Shechem. First of all, verse 22 gives us an important detail. It shows us that Abimelech's reign of terror goes beyond just the area code of Shechem to all of Israel. Verse 22 tells us uh, that he reigned in Israel, over Israel, for three years. And, And then verse 23 gives us another, just a really challenging and interesting detail. Verse 23, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem who acted treacherously against Abimelech. What does it mean that God sent an evil spirit? What are we to make of this detail? Look, all the time I read things in the Bible that just leave me with a question mark. I wouldn't dare pretend I've got all the answers or everything figured out or everything nailed down. Part of the fun of being a Christian is the journey of learning and the journey of faith and development. So there's a lot of things here that I don't know the answer to, but there's a few things here that you and I do know the answer to when it comes to God sending out an evil spirit. Here's what we do know with certainty. One, God is not the author of evil. Two, God is not tainted by evil. Three, God is the sovereign over evil. And so he will use the natural, sinful inclinations of man to achieve his good and perfect will. God, in essence, lets Abimelech and Shechem come to their natural consequences as they pursue evil uh, head on. So, following all of this, two things happen that turn Abimelech against Shechem, his hometown folks. First of all, uh, there's a group of people that decide to set an ambush outside the city. The language is a bit sketchy in the story. Your translation may describe the scene a bit different. The bottom line is uh, there are people from Shechem who are ambushing passersby, and they're either doing it in order to attack Abimelech or in the name of Abimelech. Whatever it is they do, it hacks off Abimelech. For whatever reason, this is a part of of his PR campaign that he's really concerned about. So that torques him at the people of Shechem. Second thing is this. A guy named Gaul comes into town with his brothers. And it's grape harvest season. They have a festival. Perhaps with a little bit of liquid courage in him, Gaul begins to badmouth Abimelech. And he says to the people of Shechem, who, who is Abimelech and who is Shechem? What's your case for going with Abimelech, that he's one of you? Well, here's Gaul's trump card. He says this, look, I, I'm, I come from the family of Hamor. And Hamor is the founding father of Shechem. So in essence, Gaul says this, you want Abimelech as your king because he's your son? Well, guess what? I'm your daddy. So let's go. And the people of Shechem, like dumb tribal sheep, they fall in line and away they go with Gaul. Abimelech hears about it. He's not having it. Brings his hordes with him. 
they destroy Gaul. Uh, they set a trap and destroy the people of Shechem. And then the survivors of Shechem go into this temple, this sort of fortress area. And Abimelech sets the place on fire. And we're told a thousand men and women died in that fire. You'd think that'd be enough destruction, but it's not. Abimelech then takes his troops to the neighboring town of Thebes and they capture it. And just like in Shechem, some of the town's people, they take shelter in a fortified tower. They go to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech is going to do Shechem part two. He's going to set fire to the tower. It worked well the first time. It ought to work again this time. As he goes to set the fire, an unnamed woman heaves this heavy stone off the top of the tower, cracks Abimelech's skull. That's the end of the story. He's worried about his PR, right? If you're a warrior, you want an honorable death in battle, and the honor of your death is dictated by the honor of your opponent. And an anonymous town's woman dropping a stone on your head is not an honorable death. So Abimelech in the last final act of insanity, tells his armor bearer, you kill me so the woman doesn't, as if that will rescue his reputation uh, post-mortem. In what way is God a rescuer in this story of destruction? First of all, God in his righteous judgment puts down the twin evils of Abimelech and Shechem. God destroys the destroyers of his people. That truth may be hard for us to really root down into in this church. But if you were a Christian in a North Korean prison camp, it would be strength to your body. If you were a Christian living in the blast radius of ISIS, you would rejoice to know that God's judgment is ultimate. If you were to speak to one of our Cambodian brothers and sisters in our church who lived through unimaginable horror, speak to you about the comfort that God's judgment on the oppressors of his people is as he brings them through to salvation. God does not abandon his people to their Abimelechs, but he keeps his people from utter destruction. This is how God is a rescuer. We want this story to end this way with Abimelech's demise and Shechem's purging, so to speak. God's true to his people. He's present with them in their hurt and their anguish. A second way God is a rescuer in this story comes after Abimelech's funeral. So we didn't read this, but I want you to look at chapter 10 with me. We read through the end of chapter 9. Abimelech takes a rock to the head and a sword to the gut. That dude's dead. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Imagine there's no break there, no paragraph, no number, no heading. Just the story continues. After the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar, Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He lived in Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shemir. He was followed by Jair of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havoth Jair. When Jair died, he was buried in Kamon. How awesome is this? In the wake of Abimelech, God gives Tola and Jair to his people. And he doesn't give these righteous leaders because Israel deserved it or even because they asked for it. That's and and the story isn't obligated to go this way. We could get to the end of chapter nine and it could end with a divine mushroom cloud. God just going smack to earth and we're going to do something different on Mars. God could do whatever he wants in this scene. He's not obligated to Israel to give them a Tola and a Jair. But this is what a God of mercy does. This is what a God of grace does. This is what a God of rescue does. This is what a God of love does. He is present for the salvation of his hurting and oppressed people. Abimelech terrorizes Israel for three years and God in turn gives them 55 years of peaceful leadership. Our God is a rescuing God. 
And when people ask you, who's your favorite judge in the book of Judges? And you could give them a left-handed Ehud or a wise Deborah. Or, or you could give them you know, any number. You could give them a strong Samson. But you might just want to give them a Tola and a Jair, the gifts of God's grace after the horrific reign of Abimelech. How good is God to rescue his people from these reigns of terror? What does it tell you about God? It tells you he hates evil, but he loves his people. And he is a deliverer. He is abundant in mercy and grace. He is close to his hurting people. If you walked in here today under the thumb of Abimelech, you've got Yahweh on your side. And he has proven his faithfulness to you through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Better than Tola, better than Jair, you've got Jesus to bring you through all the way. So, what an incredible story, right? It serves, I think, as both a warning and an invitation to all of us. The warning comes in the demise of Abimelech and Shechem and in the words of Jotham that we hear. The invitation comes at the end of it all. An invitation to trust the God who puts down evil and rescues his people by grace and always and only by grace. We've said here's the reasons to turn to God, to trust God in the ugliness of life because sin's a destroyer. Yeah, it's going to destroy you unless you let the Lord deal with it. We've said turn to God because righteousness is not popular. That's right. It's not popular, but this is true. The word of God is right and true. These are the words of salvation for us. We should turn to God who gave us this word and trust him. Our God's a rescuer. And so you come to him under oppression, the hurt of sin, the anguish of your soul, whatever the issue is. And he's going to lift you. He's going to save you. He's going to rescue you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the story illustrates so clearly the destructive power of sin and the beauty of our saving God. I I would hope you would be motivated this morning more by the beauty of the rescuing God than the horrors of sin on the people who stand against him. You see, apart from Jesus, every one of us have Abimelech hearts. And all the horror in this story, it comes from human sin. The rescue, the grace, the new day all come from our beautiful God. Your sin, every one of us, our sin is going to be punished with death in some way. One of two ways. Your sin will either be punished by your death. God loves you this much that he came to us. In the person of Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. And his death was a death in your place. You can die for your sin. Or you can turn to Jesus. God the one you've sinned against. Who also died in your place. You can turn to him. And trust him. And he'll save you. Three days after he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. This is how we know. That death is conquered once and for all. And that life comes through him. But the benefits of his death are not yours automatically. The benefits of his death come to you when you trust in him. You turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus wholesale your life in pursuit of him and a holiness like his. And when you trust him, when you turn to him, your life is changed once and forever. He doesn't say to you, hey, pal, get cleaned up first and then let's do this right. He just says, come with all your mess, all the ugliness, all the brokenness, all the sin. Just come. And he'll do the cleaning. He'll do the saving. For those of you who are already followers of Jesus, I struggle week in and week out with judges because every passage we deal with, we're confronted with sin. I mean, it feels almost like every Sunday is a hammer. And I don't want judges to be a hammer. I don't want you to feel like every Sunday you come to church, you're going to get punched in the face with the passage. And so oftentimes I'll think about or talk about as a staff, you know, how... How do we emphasize different things? How do we not just make it all about sin all the time? But then I realized this. Maybe there's a reason God gave us a book of the Bible that repeatedly highlights the sinful failures of the church. Maybe God knows better than me how many times we have to hear the warnings before we will hear the warnings and turn from our sin. 
If sin is truly a destroyer, then praise God that over and over again, he shows us its destructive path and calls us to his beautiful mercy. And once more, you may have come in here today with a heavy burden, hard pressed on every side, tired from the ugliness of life. I hope you found encouragement today in the God who is a rescuer, the God who is putting down the ugliness once and for all. And the end of the story tells us what it looks like when God puts down the ugliness. I don't mean the end of the Judges chapter 9 story. I mean the end of the big story tells us once and for all what it looks like when God puts down the ugliness of sin. And it looks like this in Revelation chapter 21. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. Somebody say amen. There will be no more mourning. Somebody say amen to that. There will be no more crying. I wish I had some Bible readers in here. Amen. There will be no more pain. Somebody say amen. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. May your heart be made new new today through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, the ugliness gets so much of our attention all the time. But give us your eyes to view our life and our world. Give us the reassurance of how this story is moving and how it ultimately ends. And give us the hope that comes from a resurrected Savior. Thank you for Abimelech's example and Shechem's example, the warning that's been given to us today. Let us anchor ourselves in your word and in the life that you promised to give. But I'm grateful that above all the ugliness of this story, all the horror that covers so many verses, that there are succinct and nuclear examples of your beauty that shines through all of this. Thank you for being the rescuing God. Thank you for being the God that judges evil. Thank you for being the God that does not let the oppressors of your people have the final word. Thank you for being the God that has made a way for us through our deliverer, our rescuer, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, God... Would you draw us to you? Bring my friends to you in faith for their salvation. Bring my brothers and sisters to you in faith for our repentance. Bring us to you in faith for our strength and encouragement. Bring us to you in faith that we would honor and worship your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.